Are you ready? Hey everybody! Hey folks! Hello everybody! People in the back! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're, we're gonna get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Inner Loop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and many other streaming sites. If there's somewhere you'd like to hear the Inner Loop Radio where it isn't currently available, shoot us an email at theinnerlooplit at gmail.com. On today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned for you. But first, for those of you who don't know, The Inner Loop is a literary reading series for writers in the D.C. area to come and read their own work each month. Writers' experience varies from the absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners, and they range in genre from poetry to fiction to nonfiction. And on The Inner Loop Radio, we like to give our listeners a sampling of some of the authors who read at our events, as well as going further in depth on the writing experience and discussing relevant topics to the writing life. On today's show, we're discussing genre fiction. Traditionally, literary fiction and genre fiction are considered two different worlds. Genre fiction is often not considered serious art. It's, quote, light reading, meant for, quote, entertainment and nothing more. Literary fiction doesn't want to fit into a subgenre such as suspense thriller, romance, western, or sci-fi. It wants to be sophisticated. It's meant to help you contemplate the human experience. But that barrier seems to be breaking down more and more. And was it ever really substantial? Courtney? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jump right in there with the deep <laughs> questions. Um, oh, man. Before I before we get into that, maybe we should yeah. also mention we're really excited this month. We're here um, in the 202 Creates Studio um, for a summer residency that we're part of, sponsored by the D.C. Uh, government Arts and Humanities. Uh, so we're feeling really pumped to be in this cool space and part of this this cool endeavor. Super pumped. Um yeah, I just thought I would, that's where my head was right then. So anyway, <laughs> I did throw a really big question at you, so I don't Whoa. blame you for sidestepping it. <laughs> okay, let's see. Oh, man, genre fiction versus literary fiction. Maybe I'll start with an anecdote. Um, I'm in a book club, you know, Ooh. as we <laughs> writers sometimes are. Another thing that is like often poo-pooed when you're in the literary it's world. It's so true. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's just women drinking wine. And well, yeah, I mean, we drink a lot of wine, but we do actually read. Um, and it's like a really good way to stay up on the contemporary writers. Absolutely. And things that I wouldn't normally pick up usually because we vote. It's very democratic. We vote on what we're going to read each month um but we do pick a theme and and once it was you know like romance novels and everyone <laughs> was it. embarrassed to be reading them on the metro because they're these like smutty oh covers <laughs> i want to be a part of your book group yeah <laughs> so there is certainly um an interesting distinction made but we found that a some of the storylines okay well while they're predictable 
it's engrossing. It's not, you know, so what does that say about it? And I think about storylines all the time. And really, aren't they all the same when you, when you boil them all the way down? Right. There's like three or five or something. The hero, the, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a whole yeah. thing. <laughs> but <laughs> um, just to give you an idea of where my head is at, um, the reason I was thinking of this um, theme for our show is because um, the latest Oscars, um, my partner is obsessed with the movies. Nice. And, um I have to watch the Oscars every year. And he was telling me that Get Out um, got nominated for Best Picture. It didn't end up winning. It got Best Director. But it was a huge deal because Get Out is considered a genre film. It's a thriller horror movie. Um, And those movies rarely ever get um, nominated for Oscars because they're not considered um, heady enough or sophisticated enough. Um, So I was thinking about that um, for writing because... I think that, um, you know, the literary writers kind of look down (laughs) upon the uh, genre writers. Um, But I think more and more um, those genre writers are getting nominated for really um, good awards. Well, there is a beautiful craft to it, right? You know, and and at our live events, some of the genre writers who come and read are the most interesting readings to hear, right? Because there's a performative aspect to it in addition to that kind of arc that pulls you through. And maybe that's the link there between the kind of, as you're talking about film and movies too, it's a little more in that vein and accessible. That's what I was thinking about accessibility because if you can pull off a literary genre fiction, that's kind of amazing because you're both entertaining um, the reader and keeping them engrossed and getting their blood pumping in terms of thriller, getting them laughing hysterically um, for comedy. Um, But you're also, you also are making them contemplate the human experience on a subconscious level perhaps well and like props to the people who succeed in those fields because there's a lot more competition you know so So it's harder to create something really good pun coming here novel (laughs) watch out (laughs) Gordy's the pun queen (laughs) but yeah so um i i mean i think give credit where credit's due i love a i love a good and think about um margaret margaret atwood speaking of the film book um whatever Crossover relationship, relationship yeah. um that's like a dystopian future or whatever Absolutely. but it's isn't it considered kind of a literary maybe it's like you mean the handmaiden's the tale yeah particularly the handmaid, yeah the handmaid's tale i would say yes i mean i would say it definitely i think it is it's considered it's kind of on the because it's isn't there. it required reading in school that's how you know yeah right right <laughs> it's a classic <laughs> Yes. Um, oh, and I, of course, always think of Henry James. Um, right. Speaking of classic, you said classic, and it, it reminded me. Um, I studied Henry James with Vijay in my MFA program. So that's how high of it goes. It goes from middle school all the way up to the MFA program. Um, but he, like, can write a sentence. I have a book right here because... Please. <laughs> his sentences were so um, inspiring to me when I was... Oh my God, this is great. I just <laughs> turned to a random page, but his sentences were so inspiring to me when I was in um, the program and I remember reading him. And then when I did an exercise, like I like weaved these insane sentences that were like pages long. Right, One right. sentence. Okay, here's a random sentence from him. Um, can I even say this? You, <laughs> I should give it to Courtney Cold. <laughs> <laughs> you come to me mechanically compunctuously with the dregs of your tenderness and the remnant of your life. 
I mean, listen to the rhythm in that. It's so beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's like heart pumping stuff. Well, yeah. Ghost stories. I mean, ghosts get me every time. I will not watch movies. I love ghosts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I can't. (laughs) I can't do it because I believe in ghosts. So I can't. Well, right. It really, it'll, it'll haunt me for months afterward. I mean, okay. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to um, ruin the, get our guest Yeah, later. don't, don't. <laughs> no teasers. Okay. okay. Um, before we get to that, uh, we, we have a few um, readers from our events who did lots of genre yeah. fiction. They pop up here and there and we always have a great time with them. Absolutely. Um, so before we get to our thriller section, which is next, um, we're going to do some um, literary satire. So we have Josh Logue and Eric Koslick. Uh, just to warn you all who are listening in, the audio quality from our events varies. So sometimes you might hear dishes clanking or sounds from the city or maybe, you know, ghosts passing by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we think it gives you an idea of the atmosphere of our readings. Hey guys, this is called Health Center Radio PSA Script, colon 60 seconds. Are you feeling demoralized? Are your eyes stinging and your heart pounding in your throat? Do you want more than anything to die suddenly of an undiagnosed aneurysm? If any of this sounds familiar, you may have been the victim of a sick fucking burn. Instances of sick burns are on the rise on college campuses across the nation. In order to address this trend, the University of Maryland Health Center now offers specialized support, medical aid, to all students who have been totally fucking wrecked, bro. (laughs) The Health Center provides counseling services, ointments, and humane euthanasia to dozens of totes fucking devastated students every month. If you suspect a friend or loved one has had their ass handed to them, seek help immediately. Common signs include a wobbling lower lip, strong feelings of despair or desolation, and a partial or fully melted face. Life after getting literally full-on blasted will be hard and cold and basically pointless. But hope is out there. We can help you. This message brought to you by the University of Maryland Health Center, the number one campus resource for burnt-ass losers. Thanks. Satire of myself. I am the thing that needs to be said, typed into the text message written by the guy who is drifting into your lane. I'm the slight hesitation that tells the dentist you're lying about how often you floss. I'm the finger that once wrote wash me on your mom's van. I'm the placebo pill in the cancer study. I'm the coin that the metal detector man missed and also the shitty brand of sadness that led him to purchase a metal detector. (laughs) I am the sound of cat gut in an actual cat named Stradivarius. I am your pit stains, multiplied by the number of people who noticed the food stuck in your teeth and opted not to tell you. I am the spirit of the bird that flew into your window and died returning from the afterlife to inform you that I did it because I'm a stupid bird and not because your window was super clean. (laughs) It was really dirty. I am every possible way to mispronounce your name. 
I am the lemon seed in your straw, the number on your bathroom scale, and the coffee table in the dark that someone moved six inches to the left. One thing I am not is the sailboat poster in the end credits of Mallrats. The one that poor Willem Black can finally see. No, that sailboat poster is my identical twin sailboat poster who never did drugs and went to a good school. And I, therefore, am the sailboat poster from the rest of the movie and also the depressing sandwich that Willem brings from home so that he can stand all day and stare into the depths of me and never see a goddamn thing. And despite all this, I celebrate myself and sing myself in what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. That was Josh Logue reading Hell Center PSA script, 60 seconds, and Eric Koslick reading Satire of Myself. After the break, we'll hear some literary thrillers. Continuing our show on genre fiction, how about some literary suspense thrillers to get your blood pumping and your mind thinking? Let's listen to Tara Laskowski reading The Monitor from her collection Bystanders at one of our Interloop events. This is called The Monitor. Myra and Corey hadn't expected anyone to shell out all that dough for the video baby monitor, and they only registered for it hoping to be able to scrape together enough gift cards coupons and cash to buy it after the shower. But Myra was pleasantly surprised and grateful when her Aunt Verna mailed it to her just a few weeks before the baby was born, with a nice note that mentioned that although she'd never had the pleasure of becoming a mom herself, Verna thought a video monitor would come in mighty handy for new parents. And the monitor did come in handy, very handy in fact, when Eva proved to be a colicky, fussy little thing. Although cute as a button, Eva was a handful, thrusting and screaming and spitting up more than her body weight, it seemed. So wiggly and terrified and just plain unhappy most of the time that Myra had more than once scared herself with thoughts of throwing her baby clear across the room. And when the child did fall asleep, more often out of pure exhaustion from crying than from any of the show and dance, rocking and cooing and shushing and swaddling that Myra did, Eva tossed and turned restlessly in her crib, always just one twitch away from waking again and screaming in that way that turned even the sweetest of hearts to stone. So they used the monitor often. It came with a small handheld video screen that could be easily lifted from its charging station and carried around the house. Myra propped it on the washing machine while she did laundry in the basement, or she tucked it in her sweater pocket while she vacuumed. When Corey went back to work, Myra started sleeping in the spare bedroom so that he could get his rest. Her body adjusted so that every two hours or so she would wake up, startled, even if the baby wasn't crying. So you can imagine her surprise when one night, half asleep, exhausted, Myra rolled over to check on the baby and it wasn't hers. 
The crib was a darker stain, not white. Where Eva's name was spelled in pink woodcuts above the crib, there were instead three pictures of airplanes. Myra jumped up, shook the monitor, and in the process she knocked over her glass of water, spilling it all over the carpet and herself. She cursed loudly, and from the baby's room, a muffled but distinct wail. Eva was awake and unhappy, and yet on the monitor, the baby was sleeping soundly. She had heard about these things, about monitor frequencies getting crossed, and it bothered her that the neighbors might be able to see her struggling with her fussy, colicky child, judging her and the weight she'd gained, pitying her for her difficult baby. She picked up Eva and moved out of the line of the camera, rocking her in the corner of the room. The next morning, she told Corey about it. It's got to be the people across the street, he said. Who else do we know around here with an infant Eva's age? Myra could never remember the names of the couple across the street. They'd introduced themselves several times, but she could never keep it straight. Ted and Allie or Ned and Eileen or something like that. Eileen slash Allie was a jogger, jogging right up to the end of her pregnancy, which pissed Myra off. Every time she and Corey would run into them outside, Corey would point at Eileen slash Ellie's belly and say, must be contagious. It was sort of funny the first time. Do you think that they can see us, Myra asked. Maybe not, he said. I'll read the instruction manual tonight to see how to prevent that. But Corey did not end up reading the instruction manual. And so when Myra woke up at 3 a.m. that night, she saw that the frequency was messed up again and that the baby across the street was once more sleeping with his hands pressed together like an infant in a damn Ann Gettys calendar. His bedroom was bigger than Eva's, and from the angle of the monitor, she could see past the crib to the door, which was open and led into a hallway and the staircase. The houses across the street were more spacious than Myra and Corey's place, and Myra found herself slightly envious of the larger nursery. She studied the room on that grainy monitor, fascinated despite herself. What were their lives like? Were they both sleeping peacefully with such a good baby? Did they have sex a lot? When the flash of movement came in the top corner of the monitor, Myra thought she just imagined it. But then she saw it again, a face peeking into the room. It was a little boy. Like he was playing peekaboo, his face would appear in the doorway and then duck back fast. The baby continued to sleep. Myra didn't remember the couple across the street having another child. In fact, she distinctly remembered a story that one of the gossipy neighbors told her one afternoon while she was on a walk, a horrible anecdote about a late-term miscarriage, Eileen slash Allie not only having to deliver the baby, but also deal with strangers' well-meaning comments and congratulations when afterwards she still looked pregnant. Myra remembered feeling awkward knowing something so private about a neighbor she barely knew. It was part of the reason why she tried to avoid the woman whenever she saw her on the street. Myra watched the monitor closely for another few minutes, but the little boy's face did not appear again, and she convinced herself she'd just imagined it. The monitor's screen was so grainy anyway, it was easy to see something that wasn't there. Just after Eva turned three months, Corey announced he had an out-of-town work conference he had to go to. The first night he was gone, Eva cried for two hours before falling to sleep past 10 p.m. Myra didn't even bother to put on pajamas. She just tossed herself across the bed and fell asleep on top of the duvet. 
When she woke up, she was disoriented. It was dark. She heard a humming of some kind coming from the monitor, and when she picked it up, she saw those airplane pictures above the crib, that sleeping, quiet, good kid that wasn't hers. Oh, for fuck's sake, she said aloud, her own voice somehow comforting in the dark. For fuck's sake, aren't you ever awake? Can't you cry or something? The screen went white for a few seconds and she heard a noise like a laugh or a cough. Then the room again and the little boy she'd seen before standing in the middle of it, looking at the baby. He's gonna wake him up, she thought. And Myra felt this dread, this sense of foreboding, danger. She didn't want that little boy in the room with the baby. She wished she had the neighbor's cell phone numbers. She might have called them, warned them no matter how stupid it sounded. You have a little boy in your baby's room? The boy turned and looked up at the monitor. He smiled, cocked his head in the way that most little kids do to melt your heart. But for Myra, it sent a shiver through her. She felt hot, scared, that raw terror like the time she left her niece Samantha browsing in a jewelry store in the mall and then couldn't find her. The boy was staring at the camera, staring at Myra, she thought, his eyes glowing green in the infrared. And then he laughed, a high giggle that seemed to echo, and came closer, lunging at the camera. Myra screamed. The monitor screen went fuzzy, and then the digital words, no signal, printed in red. And I'm stopping there. Thank you, guys. That was Tara Leskowski reading The Monitor, and she joins us now on the show. Welcome, Tara. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey. So excited to have you on. Um, let's just jump right in. I'm really yeah. excited about this conversation. Also, Rachel, aren't you like really creeped out as yes. you have been recently using a baby monitor? Dude. <laughs> okay. This story freaked me out when I heard it, which was like a year, you, two, a year, long time two years ago. ago. Yeah. And I never forgot it. It just like it lodged stays into my with brain. You. And now I have to use a baby monitor. Thank you, Tara. It's in HD and little like white things no, float by. I swear to God, okay. in the monitor. And I would tell people about it. And I told my friend um, who was just in town and I told my partner about it. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah they brushed crazy. it off. And then they saw it and they like jumped out of their <laughs> seats. And I was like, I told you. Like, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I told you. <laughs> I know they give you like the creepiest like you look so creepy in them too like, oh my god you it's true walk in and see yourself and the eyes glow the baby's eyes yeah. glow so, in yeah. the night vision it's real creepy <laughs> yeah. so yeah. Tara so what? kudos to you yeah. for making that into a horror story because that needed to be done <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I think actually of all of the stories I've ever written, I don't know what this says about me, but that is the one that by far has gotten the most feedback. People are always like, that was the creepiest story. I just actually got an email from someone yesterday who was like, oh, I'm reading your collection and the monitor really creeped me out. I was like, oh, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a compliment. Well, can you tell us a little bit about how you, th the craft of that? Because I think that's a huge part of it, of as what we were saying, it sticks with you. So, you know, there's obviously that, that kind of build up, but how do you pace yourself in something like that? How do you know how much to give or not, or like what to tease or not? I feel like that must be so difficult. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess when you're first starting out to write something, 
you're just kind of trying to get it down on the page. And then, you know, as in editing, going back into it, I was trying to, what I was originally trying to do was write a story about postpartum depression and that crazy time that it is after you have a baby and you have this Mm -hmm. living being in your house now and you're responsible for it and you're not sleeping and everything seems so heightened and and crazy and emotional. I was going to say, you're so dazed and delirious that everything seems like a horror film because (laughs) nothing makes sense, your brain doesn't work. So then I just decided to add a, a ghost baby, right? <laughs> of course. Because why not? Else, why not? <laughs> and a ghost like toddler. And that, that was the shocking part. Yeah. So, so the um, villain is a kid too. <laughs> <laughs> so I There's think your deeper like, meaning. Sorry. Go ahead. The, no, no, you're fine. Um, it was just the idea of, of heightening that emotional state. Um, and I think that the su- I, like I'm always interested in, in kind of that supernatural boundary where I didn't want it to be clear whether or not this was actually happening or, mm-hmm. you know, if this woman was just in this emotional state. And, you know, it could be either way. And I think even at the end of the story, pe- readers can read it either way. And that, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was going for. Um, yeah, I wanted to... I wanted to mention that Pulitzer, um, the Pulitzer Prize winning author Jennifer Egan said about your story, excuse me, stories collection. um, She said short story and thriller tend to be incompatible genres, but not in the hands of Tara Leskowski. And Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, what a wonderful quote. And excuse me, when I heard your story and I listened to it again before the show, um, I thought that it was such a perfect um, just such a perfect story that was both, like you said, supernatural, um, but also like describing a real a experience. A very real experience, yeah. And both of those things like go together so perfectly, like like you said, because of the delirium and the postpartum depression is very surreal. That, that eight weeks after having a baby is the most surreal time of my life. And I just mm-hmm. think that you did a perfect job of, of marrying um, the ghost story to that experience. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think when when she was, you know, that quote, which is totally awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm so excited that she was she did that. But you know, and and I think she's, you know, obviously there are short stories that are thrillers and crime stories and horror stories. You know, people write short stories mm-hmm. in every genre. Um, but I think what she was talking about there is, you know, this idea of the literary short story. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you have this idea of literary, and I think you guys were talking about this a little bit in your intro of, of you know, this being like this sophisticated, important. It has to have weight and meaning. Um, and you know, when, whenever anybody asks me, like, well, what kind of fiction writer are you? I always hesitate to mm-hmm. answer because I'm, you know, the word literary has such connotations, Mm -hmm. both bad and and good, you know, depending on who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with genre. And so, you know, I don't really know that I fit into either one. um, And I'm not sure that either of them, you know, like, I don't I don't know that genre is just all about entertainment. And I don't know that I would say literary fiction, you know, always is about the human experience. (laughs) I I think you can have like a horror story that like, like get out for instance, you know, mm-hmm. it talks so much about social and right. racial issues and there's like so much weight there. Exactly. For yeah. so I think I don't think I think you can have both the things in in a story or in a novel or in a movie or whatever. So 
Well, we definitely want to hear about how you did it um, and tips. <laughs> who done it? <laughs> who done it? And uh, tips on how to like bring meaning to um, to a genre story. Yeah. Um, but first, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we we also have a surprise guest joining us. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> We've been discussing genre fiction with Tara Leskowski, and now her husband also joins us, Art Taylor, who is also a writer. Art, why don't you just give us a quick overview of the kind of stuff you write? Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I write uh, crime fiction primarily, uh, right. mostly short <laughs> stories, and a lot of my short fiction has been published by Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. So while Tara comes originally from kind of a what we think of as a more literary background, mm-hmm. I was genre fiction. Uh, from the beginning. And what's interesting is the way that our careers seem to have crossed uh, in some ways. Um, sure. Each of us kind of kind of writing some similar mm-hmm. stuff along the way. Very interesting. So um, I want to know, I'm, my next, my next um, venture is going to be a ghost story or maybe hmm. a Western. I don't know. Um, so how do I <laughs> A ghost story Western? A yes. Western ghost story? Oh my God, yes. Go. Like Westworld. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you imbue... Um, meaning, deeper meaning into something like a thriller or a crime um, story? How do you sort of sow, sow those um, contemplative aspects into, into the main story? Well, I'm going to um, kind of come at that by going back a little bit to the question you asked about the difference between literary and genre fiction. Okay, and I think this me. will maybe help uh, <laughs> on that as, as, as well. Um, one of the definitions that I heard a few years ago at AWP conference in Denver about the differences between the two uh, was that in genre fiction, the action is primarily at the level of the plot, you know, what happens, who it happens to. And in literary fiction, the action is primarily at the level of the prose. What we're reading Mm -hmm. for is, um, you know, the language and how the language illuminates something Mm -hmm. about the human experience, say, we want to put it at at that level of speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, we we connect to the prose, we connect to the language. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly, uh, you know, we we can, I think all of us pick works that are plot-driven that also have beautiful prose. And in fact, a couple of years ago, uh, here at Mason, I teach at George Mason University, I taught a course in crossing genre where we looked at this from both a literary angle, literary analysis, uh, and also from a craft perspective. Um, and so we, we had on there, for example, um, Megan Abbott, who's primarily classified as a genre writer, but also Cormac McCarthy, um, mm. who is, is certainly yeah. literary mm. in the extreme. <clears throat> and to go back to where you talked about earlier in the show, uh, you know, if, if we look at Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses, it's a Western. Mm-hmm. If we look at No Country for Old Men, it's a thriller. If mm-hmm. we look at The Road, it's a horror uh, book or it's a speculative fiction, science fiction. And mm-hmm. so he certainly is dabbling in genre while at the same time working at the highest levels of literary excellence. So to mm-hmm. come back to your question there, 
I think that uh, that one of my students told me about halfway through the, the semester, an, an MFA writer, Sarah Wheeler, who is is a fine writer to begin with. And she goes, you know, she said, I've realized that in my work, I need to put more plot in there. More things need to happen. Mm. Um, and so if you're, you know, if you're already writing, say, literary work, then think about plot. Think about the way that you're going to, you know, uh, make a character compelling, make that character's struggles compelling, uh, add on some challenges and some conflicts with internal and external. And if you're writing genre fiction in terms of the way how you're going to add deeper meaning, then focus on, uh, uh, you know, the depth of character, not just what happens to a character, but what they're feeling and Mm -hmm. how you're going to illuminate their experience uh, and craft the prose. Um, uh, I taught a a course this past week, uh, weekend at St. John's College, part of their writing intense. It was all about crafting Mm -hmm. intense. (laughs) Oh, great. Yeah. And um, uh, and one of the things we did is we looked at, at passages that are suspense driven. But instead of looking at suspense writers, I looked at Alice Munro sure. um, yep. and uh, and looked at that at the way that she opens a story like Child's Play in ways that are really that uh, y- you cannot not be gripped by the opening of, of that mm-hmm. story. Um, and so I, th- I think that we just we just pay attention to balancing a couple of things, mm-hmm. balancing the, the, the driving plot and also work on that level of the sentence, uh, work on, uh, on the level of the paragraph and the prose and the language and the rhythm. Um, and I, and I think that, that focusing on those, those two things together are gonna, are gonna hit it all. I, I think that's a really good point. Something that I struggle with often is I like to create characters out of, um, non-human characters. I like to create, and we've talked about that a lot and or Rachel and I have talked about that a lot. Um, and I often get to a point where I'm like, oh, okay, I've done this thing where I've I've made this place into a really strong character, but now what? What is the place doing? What is its function? How is it? How is it now moving through the rest of the essay or the piece or the story? Um, and so I think certainly, you know, literary fiction and nonfiction can learn a lot from genre. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of place, I mean, I'll give a shout out to a couple of writers, ones that I taught in the class that I mentioned, for example, but also some that sort of jumped to mind. We think about Louise Penny, um, who is, you know, a genre writer, has had great success in the mystery world. And yet the thing that's really drawing her readers in um, is the uh, is the locale of Three Pines, you know, the, the, the character of that community, mm-hmm. of the people who are there, of their dynamics. And, we, you know, Maureen Corrigan reviews, I think, every Louise Penny book for the Washington Post, and she always talks about the way that the, the that the prose sort of opens up new understandings of what it means to be human uh, and of some, you know, the, the basic humanity that all of us have. Um, and, and part of that comes from an understanding and, and uh, an, an empathy for place. Mm-hmm. So once you've developed that setting, once you've developed those characters in that community, there's a lot of things that can happen to them mm. tweaking those dynamics um, in order to, to, to get that place, that community in motion. Um, Patricia Highsmith talks in, in uh, her book about plotting uh, suspense fiction about the idea of lines of action. She says she likes uh, uh, stories that w- in which nothing happens at the beginning or nothing seems to happen. But as she said, if you start taking the connections between people, the lines of action between what they want from one another, what they want from their lives, and then if you start just plucking those bit by bit, then the suspense is going to increase and the plot will come mm-hmm. out of that. So I'm interested in this idea of um, genre fiction being very plot-driven, literary fiction being um, 
sentence driven if you um (laughs) the the word that stuck with me from what you were saying art is the word gripping um and um you were saying that the first sentence um was gripping and then you were and then we're also talking about this suspense of the story and i just wonder how you balance um that because the other thing that stuck out to me of what you said was um a story that where nothing happens i often find when i'm writing um that i spend a lot of time in the sentence and it's sort of like requires a little bit of space in the story. I kind of have to make space sometimes for um, contemplation and um, and for these like perfect sentences. So I just wonder mm-hmm. how one would balance the gripping sentence. The pace, you mean? No, <coughs> like which, when they are competing, if right. they're competing entrance, like competing for um, being center stage. Ah, I see, yeah. So what's being center stage? Is the sentence mm-hmm. like center stage or is the plot center stage? Mm-hmm. Are you feeling gripped by the sentence or are you feeling gripped by the sus- the suspense in the story? And how do sure. you balance those? Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it is, uh, you know, it can be a balance just literally in, in how much space you give to each. Um, I'm going to recommend another book uh, for you to look at, Beast in View, by Margaret Miller. This was written in the 1950s. I can't remember the exact date, uh, but won the Edgar Award. Certainly a genre, uh, a genre book. And um, the opening of that is a phone call. Um, a woman calls up uh, Ms. Helen Clairvaux and says, and basically says, "Hello, do you remember me?" And there's a series of short sentences um, in which in which that conversation takes place. It's, it's just dialogue, and it's an escalation of tension with mm. each confrontation between the two. But about every four lines of the dialogue, there's a moment at which Helen Clairvaux, who is our, our point of view character here, um, steps back and reflects on something mm. in the conversation. Mm-hmm. She actually mm-hmm. looks in the mirror and looks at herself. Um, she lies to the woman on the phone uh, and then looks in the mirror to kind of assess the lie. And those passages, it's, it's almost literally four lines of dialogue and then a long paragraph that has more complex sentences, four more lines of dialogue, then a long reflective mood-building paragraph, mm. and then four more lines of dialogue. Now, that's, that's a pretty extreme version of this, but I think that you can modulate that pacing in mm-hmm. anything where you're having those, those, whether they're shorter sentences or not, that are moving the plot ahead, escalating the tension, escalating the suspense. Mm-hmm. And then those moments of reflection. Now, one thing I want to point out there, the moments of reflection actually don't take away from the suspense. If you're doing it right, then what's happening is there's this pause in which, as you know, if someone is going down a hallway in a horror film, it's the slow walk that builds that the suspense. That really gets you right. The mm. same thing with that, that moment of reflection in the complex sentences. Mm. They're That's slowing things down and increasing the suspense because yeah. we want to know what's going to happen next. That's great. So part yeah, of that that's is just, an it's just pacing through there. Yeah, no, that's a. I, I love that. I love that idea that you can use the the sentence level suspense to build the suspense in the background. Terry, you're awfully quiet back there. Do you have any <laughs> advice for us? He's taken over the microphone. <laughs> the suspense is killing so me. That actually brings me right, to my last question, which I yeah, I, I think I'm everyone dying is also. dying to know. <laughs> what is it really like living with another writer? <laughs> can see he's like just takes the microphone (laughs) (laughs) in him I think it is it is I'm used to being in front of a classroom (laughs) really gravitate that way well hold on let us let us amend 
Tara, what is it like <laughs> living with another writer? Um, I actually wrote a blog post about this oh, very fantastic. thing for the Washington Independent Review of Books a few years ago. It was like, I forget, seven reasons why it's great to marry a writer or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, it, it has actually, I think, a lot of times we get the like, oh, my God, you're both writers. How are you? How do you do that? But I think it's, um, you know, we're a particular type of people, writers, right? So if mm. both of us are doing it, then we can understand the crazy quirks of that. Um, you know, I especially, and I think Art would agree with this, we found it very valuable when we had Dash, our son, mm. because, you know, the pressure of having a baby to take care of and having to, you know, d divvy up responsibilities mm. and time is so different that I think we both understood that that keeping that writing in our lives was really important. And um, so therefore we were able to both kind of allow ourselves to do that in, in ways that I, I think would be harder if you were married to someone who didn't quite get it. Yeah, I think that's so Yeah, true. that makes sense. Well, um, thank you. You always have a, a reader for your work. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Oh, anyway. yeah nice. You trust each other with that. <laughs> <laughs> that was that thing that first brought Tara and, and me together. We were in a writing workshop uh, in our MFA program at George Mason, and we were one another's best reader and most appreciative Aww. reader, and somehow that evolved into <laughs> a friendship, a relationship, and a child. And That's amazing. Well, Very thank cool. you two lovebirds yeah. for being on the show with us. It's been so nice. <laughs> thank you, guys. It's been great. Thank you. Uh, well, we can't do a genre episode without doing sci-fi, right? No. Okay. So stay tuned. Let's gather. Gather. Um, you can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. We're continuing our show on genre writing, and we're diving into sci-fi. I, personally... <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> I, I believe that sci-fi is the future of all art. Isn't it like the future of the future? It's the future it's of the like future. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> that like what sci-fi is? <laughs> I feel like, you know, 1984, just like, you know, everybody thinks it's like predicted the future or whatever. And right. so sci-fi, I just think it's it's there. It's... It's out there to prophesy the world. Yeah, well, and you know... You should have seen Courtney's face. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, trying to <laughs> I was trying to process that. Growing up in a household where I was forced to watch Star Trek on a regular oh, basis, yes. I have some, like, you know, residual resentment for the genre. Yeah, However, I hated that show. But isn't it interesting to think about? It's possible for that to be our future. Right. And I do really appreciate a lot of the newer sci-fi that has come out over the past five, ten years. There's some beautiful work being done both in, you know, TV, film and literature. Um, so it is pretty cool. And it's so inspiring just for humanity. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's, it's horrible. really depressing. <laughs> but then that's inspiring to make sure we don't go there. <laughs> let's not do this. Yeah, sometimes Westworld. it's too real. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why don't we let our writers show yeah. us how some literary sci-fi Let's hear how they do done. it. Chapter's called, Seriously, What the Hell Happened? <laughs> I have some possible theories. Number one, 
God hates me. That was a lousy place to start. Where the hell do you go from there? Am I being punished for what? I am Adam cast out of the garden. I am Jonah in the whale. See, I did learn something in my 10th grade Bible as literature class. Thanks, Mrs. K. <laughs> but that premise suggests that I have to do something to get back into God's good graces, which would lead to a sub-theory. Number 1A, God wants me to repent. Can't figure out what for, doesn't help, moving on. <laughs> Number 2, God has forsaken us. This one takes the blame off of my shoulders, but is not exactly comforting. Kind of like God is a little kid and the earth a forgotten toy that rolled under the bed where the battery slowly ran down. There's just enough power left to keep me going, and nothing is going to change until God cleans his room and finds us and recharges the world, or at least sells earth at a garage sale to let some other God play with us for a while. <laughs> number three, the aliens are coming. There are a number of ways this one goes. The aliens are coming to kill us all, but first they froze the world with a giant freezing ray so that they can take over without worrying about anything but incinerating a bunch of immobile life forms. But they didn't count on one man being immune to the effects of the ray, and that one hero, me, will vanquish them and bring back humanity. This is the Hollywood screenplay. One problem, no sign of aliens. That leads to number 3A. I am the alien's guinea pig. <laughs> the aforementioned aliens have set this all up as an experiment to study me to see how I'll react under extreme circumstances. I am the rat running through the maze. No thank you. Number four, I'm stuck in the matrix. In this one, none of this is real. I'm Keanu Reeves stuck in my little water cocoon with wires plugged into the back of my head, feeling, uh, feeding me an entire virtual reality. But there is a malfunction in the computer program, and I'm the only one getting any input. That would explain why everyone else is stuck, a computer glitch. We need to reboot. Big problem, I don't look anything like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Number 4A, a government experiment has gone awry. Somewhere in the bunker, the poor schmucks who designed the time-stopping machine are frozen just like everyone else. Or maybe they're watching me navigate through it unable to leave their bunker without being affected themselves, which would be similar to 3A, except my adversary in the movie would be Donald Sutherland in a military uniform rather than Andy Serkis in a motion capture suit. <laughs> Number five, I'm crazy. I'm sitting in a rubber room in an institution somewhere, being force-fed medications that keep me docile. The world is all in my head. This theory scares me, so I don't think about it, even though it is pretty solid, given my family history. <laughs> Number six, there is no logic in the universe. This is all random, and the universe is unexplainable. I have no control over my fate or the events of this world. Yeah, that's the one I really don't like. That's the one that makes my throat constrict. I don't like to think about having no meaning whatsoever. There has to be a reason. In the One Day War, Budapest died. Buda became the White Lake, a nanotech toxic waste, endlessly making diamonds that wash up on the shores of Pest. If you're desperate, collect the diamonds. If you're really desperate, 
Strap-on maglev boots and figure skate the steaming lake in sponsored suits, doing spins, sow cows, and axle for satellite viewers seeking glamorous death. Your narrator, Domita Bercari, is a lover of the lover's interface, a sex worker empath who can be anyone's ideal mate. But once he was a refugee boy, his father fixed taxi bots, the former delivery drones that run pests meager services. Until one day, father died. We have no undertakers in pest, skater funerals are fast and loud, no body. My father's guest list is old timers, hidden in security routines. We agree on hour 11. The taxi bots spray coat my father with clear polymer. The next morning, lake spotters, smugglers, printers, growers come for a funeral as out of style and old as the man. Bottles of palinka go around. We tell stories, make toasts, not shouting. I thank the man who saved my life and cared for me. Friends speak of his humor, his intelligence, his bad luck, his love for me. Each hugs me, finger swipes me a few thousandths of a bit. Lecho gives me a fat hunk of yellow diamond. No one lingers. Soon I'm alone with my father. He looks faded, puffy. I've never seen a body decompose. The gases discolor the polymer, rotting like fruit. This is goodbye. I know where his body will go, how little it's worth now. No value in his strong, tense hands, his breath sweet with mint tea his smile and bright eyes, spoiling in a tube. Two bots drift in, the rotor jets blowing palinka wrappers across the floor. One bot lifts the table to carry it to the lake. I wave to father, close my eyes, inside me a wrenching away, as if I pry myself off a secure place to be borne away by winds. There's still a bot in the room, smaller than a standard bot, with neither cargo net nor seat. A white light projects Hungarian in the air. I am the translator. Our condolences on your loss. In nine years, they've only communicated in red and green lights. Even through my grief, it's arresting. Translator for who? Between my kind and yours. Are you throwing me out? Finally, yes. You are not good at engineering. You will have to go, so we may put this space to productive use. You must leave in three days. My father has collector diamonds, wild bezoars and crazed shapes he bought from shorecomers, but I can't set up a safe trade at human prices in three days. Taxi bots don't extend credit. I can't survive alone in the alleys of Pest. Will you help me find a new home, I ask. Taxi bots began as agents of commerce. They can make deals. What did you have in mind? Message the lover's interface. Use their diplomatic port. Present my, detail, present my details and offer to sell me. At what price? Don't set a price. The translator pitches forward, levels, like a bow. It drifts out, pauses, and comes back. The interface has already responded. They offer a hundred bits.
I'm stunned. Take it, I tell the translator, lest they offer more. The lovers offer my own future debt bondage, what I must earn by pleasing others, a work of decades. Still, the best deal a person like me has ever made. Alone, I'd have been one of a million every hour, begging the interface to rescue them from poverty or war. Would the taxi bots have passed asking for me? Head of the queue. That was Michael Landweber reading from his book entitled Thursday, 1.17 p.m., published by Coffee Town Press, and Anthony Dabransky reading his story at an inner loop event. Up next, literary noir and romance. before we let you go we just had to share one of our favorite pieces in all of interloop history <laughs> it's, it's definitely courty so i'm gonna let her introduce it <laughs> it's true um we bring up this noir piece by mike madden uh almost every chance we get and several times <laughs> in this show i think yeah probably <laughs> And the funniest thing is you know two years later i was in uh <laughs> the dc district court um for oh no for reasons that we won't go into right now but uh i actually ran into mike there shut <laughs> up it was crazy <laughs> uh he is an attorney by day a noir writer by other times an amazing noir writer Very and amazing. the story takes place in a courtroom yes so, so have a listen god bless your black little heart you single-handedly raised domestic squabbling to a blood sport it was no surprise you charged up my amex but the theft of my Versace shades and Swiss Army knife was bewildering, although the horrifying implications soon became clear. My hatred of you is exceeded only by my respect. I, I mean that as a compliment. You are a master. For the record, I had affairs with every woman on your suspect list, except Trish. It's not that I didn't try, mind you. She turned me down. <laughs> Threatened to squeal unless I coughed up 1500 which I skimmed from our retirement account. That woman is definitely your sister. <laughs> Those text messages weren't really from clients, and none of the trips were business. Atlantic City being the exception, networking conference, swear to God. <laughs> and although I made it with a hooker at Harris, I'm not sure it counts as it was a gift from a client. <laughs> sure, you kept your panties on as far as I know, but how do you think it made me feel being chastised constantly? Ridiculed in front of my friends for those late-night poker parties and boys' nights out. Fidelity isn't everything, you know. It was two in the morning when they knocked on Barbara's door. You remember Babs, the redhead in the colonial across the street? She barely had the latch undone when they burst in. Flat jackets, automatic weapons, screaming, All clear! as they checked each room. They dragged me to the lawn in my skitties and cuffed me in front of our neighbors. You should have seen the look on old Miss Fletcher's face. Almost made it worth it. Oh, the interview room at the 5th District Police Station? Just like in the movies. One table, two-way mirror, three cops. 
You know why we're why you're here? They asked. Parking tickets? Hilarious. We found her two hours ago, funny man. They slid me a photo. You, of course. Propped against the shed in our backyard. My Swiss army knife sticking out of your neck. Versace shades nearby on the ground. Like I said, master. Need a minute? Christ, I said. I need a lawyer. <laughs> That was Mike Madden reading at an Interloop event. So before we let you go, uh, of course, we had to dip into a little romance. Okay, I have something to tell you about my (laughs) secret love of romance novels. Okay, when I was growing up, my mother always had a romance novel on the back of the toilet. I didn't know where this was going. I was like, (laughs) what is she going to tell me? (laughs) Something horrible. No. I just love those romances. You were saying earlier in the show that you read one recently. Tell me about it. Tell me everything. Oh, yeah. No, I, my mother also growing up had a stack of Was them. it we all to, mothers? Uh, maybe. We had to donate them to the library. They just like piled <laughs> up. And then I was like, do people at the library really want these? They all have the same cover, the shirtless man riding a horse. I don't know. Like, exactly. But they're really good. <laughs> <laughs> are they are they they're fun they are fun they're fun they're great for the beach <laughs> anyway uh romance we got some literary romance for you from megan albert <laughs> uh this is called poem about your bottom lip i was afraid to leave teeth marks swelling but You can actually go a little harder, you said, and a small huff, the truth torn from you a little, and I like that. I've held you at the edge of my thoughts all day, held even further how you folded into yourself at the end and turned from it. At first, I didn't like your gentleness like eyes adjusting to the dark, like learning how painters talk in tone and color. You emerged to me, sort of velvety and delicate, like the inside of a foxglove. I bit your lip harder, and a sound like a crushed flower tumbled from your mouth. It opened as it fell and set forth a deep wood, you and I stood outside. Now, every morning, just before I wake, you appear to me, and I ask grief to stay. That was Megan Alpert reading at an Interloop event. And that's our show. Join us next month for more literary conversation. To find out more about us or submit to read at our next event, visit www.theinnerlooplit.com. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music, James Skinner for technical support, and 202 Creates and Mr. Tyrone over there. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streaming site you use. Your review could be what inspires the next person to tune in or submit. And don't forget to subscribe yourself so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Right on, Litwits.